Now, and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 6 this morning. Sunday morning, we're in a series that's entitled uh, Gleanings Through uh, Genesis, and uh, we jump into chapter 6 this morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just uh, flag one of these guys coming up the aisle right now, and they'll put a Bible in your hand. We really want you to hear the Word of God uh, taught, but we want you to see it with your own eyes as well. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible uh, a gift from the Lord to you today. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Now, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And then the Lord saw the wickedness of, uh, that it was, wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Let's pray together. Father, as we come always to your word and always to Sunday mornings, gathering together to worship you and to study your word, we just stop and look at the week before and just the sheer amount of conforming influence that has come into our ears and And before our eyes, so many messages, so much talking, so much seeing, all of it endeavoring to fashion us uh, after itself in some way. And how thankful we are to turn to your word now and have you conform us into the image of Christ by your Holy Spirit. Conform our thinking, conform our doing, our perspectives, our decision making, our everything and giving us an eternal perspective in a world in which that is so easy to lose. And we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit through your word this morning that would accomplish all of that in each one of our lives. And we pray it and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Chapters uh, 6 through 8 of Genesis, it provides us with a record of God's judgment of the world through a flood at the time of uh, Noah. And we'll probably spend two or three more uh, weeks on this before we get all the way uh, through it. Chapter 8 begins uh, significantly with the words, uh, now it came to pass. In other words, the events that in chapter 6, they build upon a continuation of the history of man as it was detailed uh, for us in 
uh, chapters 4 and 5 in what is known as the antediluvian uh, period. That is that period in man's history uh, between the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden till the time uh, of uh, the worldwide flood at the time of Noah. And uh, this period between the fall and the flood that's described in chapters 4 and 5 is a period that covers uh, 1,656 years. So quite a significant uh, jump in time has occurred that's important to understand in order to understand the passage properly. And uh, in the second half of chapter 4, we have described for us, you can look at it another time, the continuation of the lineage of a very, very unrepentant uh, Cain uh, f- uh, following his murder of his brother uh, Abel. And that second half of chapter 4 describes the advancement of civilization, the advancement in animal husbandry, the advancement in music, the advancement in the art, advancement in uh, metalwork and mechanical skill, and uh, a tremendous leap forward on all of those fronts in terms of civilization. Uh, But unfortunately, all of these advancements in the arts and in technology were not at the same time coupled with a love for God or a recognition of God, and certainly not coupled with any kind of a fear uh, of, of God. And it is a fear of God and acknowledgement of God that keeps the advancements uh, of any kind in uh, human history uh, safe and sanctified. And, and as a result of that, uh, something that is a blessing Uh, to man. So you have essentially described there uh, the rapid, rapid spread of civilization, but it is a godless uh, civilization. I think that uh, we see much of the same kind of uh, things that happen are happening today, and they create the same kind of concerns. I mean, we live in a time where uh, information is doubling, uh, uh, you know, every few weeks now in terms of man's knowledge. They estimate that it won't be long before it will literally uh, double in, in a period of days. So astonishing uh, advancements in terms of technology and in terms of civilization and medicine and science and uh, development certainly of weaponry. And, and it isn't the advancements uh, in all of these realms that Uh, alarm people. I mean, we're headed into artificial intelligence. But what alarms people is that these tremendous advancements are occurring today when uh, these advancements that have such a capacity for both good and evil, but they're occurring at a time in which man is rapidly losing his fear of God. Uh, rapidly losing any kind of a, a, a sense of accountability to God. And it is that fear of God and that sense of accountability to someone, that, to someone who is greater than us that keeps any and all advancements in civilization and techni- uh, te- technology safe and, and well-directed. And so uh, this was the scene of the ancient world at the time uh, immediately preceding the flood. It is a mark of, of our day as well. The genealogy that makes up, uh, in large part, chapter 5, you can check that out for yourself another time, it reveals to us 
the amazing longevity of man, the lifespans that were uh, characterized human beings during that antediluvian uh, period prior to the flood, uh, and that genealogy that is listed there, uh, the average lifespan of, of the uh, men and the generations that are listed there is 912 uh, years, and uh, perhaps due in part to the fact that Prior to the flood, there appears to have been this atmospheric canopy over the entire earth that uh, provided a uniform uh, temperature and climate and perhaps uh, protection from uh, harmful rays of the sun's or, uh, sun or whatever it is that uh, moves the, the uh, aging process along. But uh, that's exactly how it was in, in, uh, prior to the flood as described in uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, for those of you who take notes. And it, and it is recognizing these very, very uh, long, long lifespans that, uh, uh, that makes us realize and, and gives us a sense of context for chapter 6 in terms of what would have uh, allowed for a very, very rapid uh, population growth of, of human beings. Perhaps in that period, as man is just beginning uh, on the earth, if he had a lifespan of three score and ten, which is the typical lifespan for us, uh, it, it, things would have moved much uh, slower. Even uh, our existence might have been in jeopardy. But given the fact that li people lived for these kind of uh, lengths of time and uh, had so many childbearing years as a result uh, of that, it allowed for uh, human population to expand uh, very, very rapidly. Uh, the, pro uh, the, the problem with those long period of years in terms of the lifespan of people is that it gave people an extraordinary length of time to get into trouble uh, and to explore wickedness in a way that even the most wicked person in the world today only has the three score and ten and, and even the length of their life uh, is something that kind of curbs uh, the influence for evil and, and the exploration uh, of evil. But these lifespans of 900 years plus uh, allowed uh, a lot of time to, to, if a person chose to uh, abandon God and, and, and to pursue wickedness to really get in trouble. Uh, people that study these kind of things, they look at the lifespans of human beings in, in chapter 5, uh, the 1,600-plus years that are there, uh, the number of years that would have been childbearing years for uh, men and women during those period of time, uh, and, and what would have been the population growth. And they, they take the average population growth of the world, uh, say today, and they begin to just kind of uh, uh, factor it out. And uh, in factoring that out in terms of lifespan, in terms of uh, the length of time, 1,600 plus years, the estimate is that conservatively the population of the world could have been somewhere in the vicinity of conservatively 750 million people. Uh, and then on the, the outer range, some even estimate as much as uh, three or four uh, billion. Uh, notice the marks or the characteristics uh, of the world at the time of the flood. And uh, as we notice these marks of, of the characteristics of the world at the time of the flood, God's judgment, uh, to then, in doing so, to understand that in any age, 
Uh, and certainly in terms of the end of the age, as Jesus talks about it, uh, these are the characteristics, these are the marks of a world that is uh, very much ripe for uh, judgment. You notice in verses 2 and 4, probably the most kind of, uh, you know, gotcha, catch your attention uh, verses in the entire section, we notice that it was a time where there was a tremendous demonic influence uh, being uh, exercised among mankind. And so it was a period in which there was an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, uh, involvement of the demonic realm in the affairs of men. You notice in verse 2, it speaks of the sons of God uh, somehow seeing the daughters of men, uh, noting their beauty, and then taking them uh, as uh, wives uh, as they uh, chose, and then uh, and uh, somehow having their choice of the lot of women, and, uh, and then marrying them. In verse 4, it speaks of the fact that uh, the children that were produced by these unions were extraordinary. Uh, they were, were told giants, very, very large human beings physically, so uh, bigger and stronger than anybody you'll see on a football field today as you watch the Sunday games, or bigger and stronger than any athletes that you'll see in, in the N, uh, NBA. Uh, we're told that they were mighty men, so they were strong. The idea of the word is they were mighty, they were champions, they were uh, heroic. They had a kind of an, a, a, an a, a aggressive kind of uh, 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 attraction to them in terms of uh, kind of being leaders and, and moving forward. They were also, we're told, men of renown, and the idea is that they were famous. They were men of great standing, men of great reputation in their day. Everybody knew them, everybody uh, looked up to them. They became the leaders, they became what everybody respected in that day, uh, they became what everybody idolized, it was the ideal man, and, uh, and their children were the ideal children, it's what everybody uh, wanted to be like. Now, whatever is happening here, uh, uh, is very, very troubling to God, uh, as you notice in, in uh, verse 3. He declared that, uh, uh, that he had had uh, enough of the wickedness of man in whatever is happening here, and that he wasn't going to put up with it anymore, and he would give mankind uh, 120 more years, the time that it would take Noah to build the ark before he brought his judgment upon the earth. He was giving them this period of repentance before he wiped out this, uh, this, this wickedness. Now, there are three primary uh, I, different ideas about what's being described here in this union of these uh, sons of God and uh, the, uh, the daughters of, of men uh, here. And uh, the first one is that what's being described here is something that's completely natural. Uh, that because uh, uh, the, of the lineages of Cain and the lineages of Seth have just been talked about in chapters 4 and 5, uh, many people carry that context then into chapter uh, 6, 
and they consider the daughters of men to refer to uh, the descendants of the godly line of Seth and that the sons of God refer to the descendants of the ungodly uh, lineage of Cain. And so now uh, the two lineages begin to intermarry and it results in apostasy and compromise and, and sin. The problem uh, to me with that view is that not everyone in the lineage of Cain was ungodly and not everyone in the lineage of Seth uh, was godly. It's true that uh, Noah and his family uh, are of the lineage of, of Seth, and, uh, but the whole, uh, a, an entire world of the descendants of Seth are going to die in the flood every bit as much as the descendants of, of, of Cain. Additionally, there's no uh, uh, reason why the union of a godly person and an ungodly person would produce giants or mighty men or men of renown any more than any other uh, sexual union. I mean, there are plenty of uh, Christians who are married to non-Christians and their offspring are pretty much like everybody else's uh, offspring. The second view related to what's being spoken about here is that uh, what is happening is uh, supernatural in its origin, that the uh, daughters of men refer to female uh, human beings and that uh, the sons of God refer to angels. And the reason that uh, that view is held that the sons of God is a very, very common phrase that is used in, in the Old Testament uh, which is where we are to describe uh, angels. And so it's commonly used there. So the idea is that what is being described here is angels procreating with human beings. And uh, this, of course, would help to explain kind of the supernaturalness of the children that were produced uh, based upon uh, that union, these giants, these men of renown and, and uh, mighty men. And of course, you would expect some kind of uh, superhumanness if, uh, about a creature that was both uh, half man and, and half angel. The problem with this view is that there's no indication in the scriptures uh, that uh, angelic beings are sexual beings. And we know definitively that they do not marry. And so these sons of, of God here marry, and if they, uh, uh, they are indeed angels, even fallen angels, uh, the, uh, it violates what Jesus declared uh, uh, of angels, and that can't be violated, and that is that they neither marry nor are given in marriage uh, in, in terms of the angelic beings, uh, Matthew chapter uh, 22, verse 30. Now, there's a third view, and, and that is that the sons of God refer to physical men uh, who have been possessed by demons, and that's the view that, that I hold. And I, I'm inclined uh, to believe that what is happening here, and when I say I'm inclined to believe, that's a qualifying statement. You can completely disregard it, but I'll show you why I believe it. I'm inclined to believe that what is happening here is that demons deliberately targeted and then possessed the the strongest and the brightest men of the age who then, under the influence of demon possession, 
then selected the most beautiful, the, uh, the strongest, and the brightest women with whom to marry and then produce children. And that what is occurring here in Genesis chapter 6 is uh, what is now referred to as eugenics, which is the science of improving a human population by intentional controlled breeding to increase the occurrence of desirable, uh, heritable uh, characteristics. Uh, interesting to realize that uh, the uh, philosopher Plato in the ancient world, he strongly advocated this uh, for human beings. Uh, Sparta, Greece, Rome, all of them pursued it to some degree. And uh, the Spartans to the greatest degree where uh, under their empire and uh, government, uh, a city's elders would examine uh, a newborn child and then deemed based upon physical characteristics whether uh, it was fit to live. Of course, in modern times, uh, this was uh, attempted uh, and, and to some degree under Hitler, who, by the way, had a very, very high view. Of, uh, of, of the Spartan uh, civilization, and of course they endeavored uh, to uh, practice it as well. So you, you have a kind of demonically inspired and demonically uh, orchestrated uh, mating uh, of the highest and, and the brightest and the strongest, the most aggressive, and, and even the most evil in a population uh, among both men and women producing kind of a master race uh, uh, under demonic influence. And for the purpose, in terms of anything demonic, uh, when you get to anything that's demonic in terms of its ultimate end, you, it, it's always the same. And I'm convinced it's the same here. For the purpose of wiping out godliness from the earth and then establishing wickedness as, as the uh, law of the land. And it isn't that the entire world needed to be in this condition or every child that was born was in this condition, merely that this group would, by virtue of their stature and their, their physical force and, and their, their violent will, that they, they would then use these qualities uh, to gain supremacy over their, their fellow man and then to secure that supremacy by becoming uh, the, the uh, idealized definition of manhood and, uh, and who would then be eagerly followed in terms of their actions and, and how they uh, lived by a, a following population. Now, all of this is very important. I think it is to notice that uh, God holds man fully responsible here. And uh, when he looks at this scene, uh, he denounces it with the word, notice in verse 3, my spirit shall not strive with demons forever. That's not what he says. He said, my spirit will not strive with man forever. And God doesn't declare that mankind had become some kind of a, you know, a hapless, witless victim of the demonic realm in, in all of this. Personally, when I read the Bible, and that's another qualifying statement, I don't believe that a demon can just possess a human being uh, willy-nilly. Uh, I don't think that uh, that is characteristic of, of, uh, of, of the demonic uh, realm, or, or else they would be doing it continually uh, 
against the will of, uh, of and the desire of people. And we would see much more uh, demon possession uh, if uh, given uh, if they were free to do that, given the fact that demons seem to have a very strong desire uh, to be embodied. They are not embodied. But they, you remember when Jesus was going to cast the legion of demons out of, uh, of that, that man in Gadara, and the demons uh, were so uh, used to being in an embody, in, in, embodied in this man that when they were going to be cast out, they asked if they could be cast out into the herd of swine. Uh, they, uh, they would rather be uh, possess swine, possess something that has a body, than not to possess uh, uh, anything, which tells me they, they could have just been cast out and said, it's no big deal, we'll head into one of the cities in Gadara, and we will demon possess people at our will. But, but they don't seem to have that kind of, uh, of inability. I believe that in order for a human being to be demon-possessed, uh, a person has to open themselves up to that possession in some way. It can occur in dabbling with the occult, uh, seances, or Ouija boards, or uh, tarot cards, or really investigating the, the, the demonic realm and, and, and demon worship. Uh, uh, those kind of things will open a person up to that. Uh, or just openly, someone just openly surrendering themselves for the, to the devil uh, for his uh, purposes. And I, I think it's certainly possible, in fact, I think it's probable that at the heart of all of this demonic involvement that we're uh, reading about here uh, were men who actually uh, uh, were asking to be possessed for the purpose of becoming great in the world. Uh, a willingness and a, and a cry, uh, looking at someone who is a demon possessed. The man has become a great man of renown, reputation. He gets whatever woman uh, he wants and so forth. And for people to look and say, uh, uh, whatever uh, is the path to be able to have that and to be that and to do that, I will surrender myself uh, to it. And so people, uh, I think, actually asking to be possessed, possessed in that time for the purpose of becoming uh, great in the earth, to achieve the greatness and the renown and the fame of, and, and as, as I said, their choice of women in the same way that I think all of us have heard of rock and rollers and other musicians selling themselves to the devil in order to attain much the same things in a different way. Uh, uh, fame and power and wealth and, and, uh, and women. So uh, this, what is described here in, in Genesis chapter 6 is a, a period of, of incredible, uh, uh, deeply, uh, the world had become a deeply demonic uh, environment. Uh, some people hold the view that all of this was a, that was going on here was a deliberate attempt by the devil uh, and by the demonic realm to circumvent the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and uh, the, an attempt to ruin the entire uh, gene pool of man so as to make it impossible for God to produce a savior uh, through man who would ultimately crush Satan's head or his authority. Uh, and, and there's some merit to that. 
And uh, when you realize that only eight people end up getting on that ark ultimately, you realize how very close, if it was a demonic kind of plan related to things, how very close it came uh, to succeeding in exactly that. Um, I think the view that, uh, that what is described here is uh, demons operating through men is further bolstered by the fact that the children produced here are uh, fully human. They're not half human, they're not half uh, angel, as is described here again, my spirit shall not strive with man uh, forever. Uh, I think that there are glimpses within the New Testament that speak to this, this uh, very thing as a, the proper interpretation of it. The Apostle Peter, you can note the passages, I'll, I'll read them to you. He spoke of the fact uh, that Uh, concerning the angels who participated in this time, uh, in all of this at the time of Noah, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive uh, by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Speaking of, of the demons who await judgment, in hell, and when Jesus went uh, for those three days and three nights, he, he preached in, in uh, Hades, the waiting place, and the description of the demons that were being held in, in that, that place, uh, Peter goes on and says, who formerly were disobedient, uh, and, uh, and gives the time frame for it, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in a, uh, which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. Uh, Peter reinforces all of this when he gets into his second epistle and uh, writing of uh, the uh, incar- incarceration of these fallen angels for their part in uh, the events associated with the flood, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And then he gives the context of uh, why this was done. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, uh, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Jude makes mention of it in his epistle, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their former domain, uh, but left their own abode, he is reserved in everlasting chains uh, under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now what's fascinating is that the average demon today is free to move around at their own uh, uh, discretion. Uh, the demonic realm is not, uh, by and large, uh, held in Hades or a place of judgment today. They're very active in the human condition. But these particular angels associated with the time of the flood, God speaks about uh, the, the judgment that he placed upon them of incarcerating them, locking them up for uh, their, their place of responsibility in all of it for a a future judgment. 
And uh, so, uh, but the list of, of the marks of the world, uh, a world that is ripe for God's judgment, doesn't just stop here with a, a time of, of a tremendous demonic influence upon man. But it goes on to talk about this time of Noah, verse 5, as a time of great wickedness. And so, uh, the, a time of tremendous evil. Uh, in in the world, a time when you uh, when you look at the wickedness of the world, and it has become so great uh, that it cannot be explained merely in uh, the depravity of man's heart or the fallenness uh, of of man, but you begin to look at wickedness being uh, occurring on the earth. Uh, that goes way beyond even man's natural attraction to evil or his ability to invent evil and evil practices where you look at it and, and you say, uh, these practices are, are so base and they have become so widespread uh, that they must have a, a supernatural origin. Uh, they must be uh, uh, demonic in their origin. And I think that that it, it, it describes much of the world today. When you look at the human trafficking, you look at the sex trade trafficking that goes on in the world today. When you look at the, the pornography, and not just pornography, when I, and, and I say don't look at it, but when you, when you look at it as a subject, uh, the, how debased uh, pornography is in all of its form. When you look at how widespread uh, sexual immorality has become, the drug uh, trafficking and abuse, and, and all of these things, the, the, the wickedness, not just that it exists in pockets in the world, but how it has become now to mark the entire uh, world. Uh, a third mark of, of, of such a society or a world that is deserving of judgment, he says that this was a, a time of uh, corruption. And, he, and he, we didn't quite get there in our reading, but there in verse 11, and uh, the word means ruin or it means destroy. In other words, uh, it, it is a world that is descending into ruin. Uh, because of sin and wickedness. And it is descending into a ruin uh, and destruction, uh, into a ruin based upon its own wickedness and its own uh, uh, evil that uh, the evil becomes so great it, it threatens the, the, the very existence of, of, of man and of the world. Do you ever get the feeling uh, that the path that we're on currently in the world, I mean, when you think about it specifically morally and spiritually and, and in terms of, of how people are uh, thinking and acting, where you look at it and go, this is a path to destruction. Uh, this is a sure path uh, to uh, the judgment uh, of God. I certainly feel that way as I watch the world on a weekly basis. You ever look at the world and think, this, is, this place is crazy. Uh, people are going crazy here. And, uh, and then you look at it and you go, no, this is way beyond normal crazy. This is a new kind of crazy. Uh, this is people who are no longer thinking. This is people, uh, this has got to have, uh, uh, there's a demonic realm uh, behind what it is that we're seeing uh, before our very eyes. Uh, no one would, no mere human being, however debased, would ever make uh, decisions that are so bad 
on a, uh, on a national level, an international level, an individual uh, level without some kind of help from uh, the demonic realm or to be blinded by the demonic realm in all of it. The fourth thing that's described here is also, as, it, as it's put there in, in verse 11, is it would be a time when the world is due judgment, a time when the world is filled with violence. We see that today. Uh, the, the, uh, the Islamic uh, terrorism that fills the entire uh, uh, world, uh, the drug cartels and wars. I mean, uh, a normal human being doesn't uh, cut people's heads off by the dozens and pile them outside of police stations. Uh, around the world, the wars that are going on uh, around the world, people going out and shooting up schools or theaters or or nightclubs. You're talking about the demonic realm here. This is a, this is people tapping into something that is is beyond man's own uh, fallenness. Abortion is certainly in uh, that character, and maybe the most. Uh, concerning of all related to it. I shouldn't put it that way, but the the most instructive of all uh, is when you are in in a world in which the single most uh, persecuted population in the world happens to be God's people, uh, happens to be uh, Christians, and the violence is being meted out against them. Is it any wonder that God would step in in judgment and say, I will give the world the judgment that they are meeting out on my uh, people? And uh, God, he, he watches uh, all of it. But again, these things aren't things that are happening in little isolated pockets of extraordinary wickedness around the world. Uh, they're, they're coming to permeate the entire world. He tells us further that that, uh, a mark of of, uh, a world that's ripe for judgment in verse 5 is when man gives himself to evil imaginations continually. I want you to just look at that verse 5 one more time. And uh, when then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil uh, continually. That's quite a triunity of words. Every, only, and continually. And here is a description of what uh, the, uh, the human heart will crave and will give itself to. You, you, you simply cannot state the, the uh, wickedness uh, of, of the world or of the human condition more forcibly than uh, every, only, and continually. And when I look at the culture around us, it is, it, in my view, uh, I think we're down to the Hallmark Channel. Uh, is an exclusion to that. Not great art, by the way, but but when I look at the culture and the world, it it just seems to be this determined, headlong uh, exploration of evil and the exploration of of wickedness in in the movies and television, literature, music, art, video games go right down uh, the list. And, and when you see these things get 
to this kind of a place, now you're dealing with a rebellion against God and his commandments that is demonically inspired and threatens the very future of, of the world. And it is, uh, it is a world that must be judged. It's an affront to God when a world gets into this condition. And it is a world that not only, uh, if it isn't judged by God, it is sowing the seeds for its, its own uh, destruction. The greatest threat uh, uh, to the future of the world, uh, th- this may be shocking, uh, try not to gasp. Uh, The greatest threat to the future of the world is not global warming, uh, and it is not uh, overpopulation. Uh, These things that people are so concerned about today, we ought to take care of our earth, but the single greatest threat to mankind is the thing that nobody talks about uh, today and uh, gives any attention to, and that is the rejection of God, His commandments, and the absence of the fear of God. And that is the greatest danger to civilization, to mankind, and the future uh, of the world. And one of the reasons this Old Testament account is important to us as Christians today is because Jesus referenced it. Uh, in his teaching in a similar uh, context, in uh, uh, speaking in a, a, a concerning a similar context, and that is a future judgment that God is going to bring on the whole world for the very same reasons at the end of the age prior to his return, uh, prior to uh, what is known as the tribulation period in which God pours out his judgment upon a world not only for uh, the wickednesses that we've talked about uh, here this morning, but for the greatest wickedness from the vantage point of heaven that a person can ever be guilty of, and that is a lifelong rejection of his son, God's son, and the salvation that is found solely in, in Jesus. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 38. He said, For as in the days uh, before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them away. And so also will the coming of the Son of Man uh, be. And in this, Jesus does a couple of things. Number one, he uh, absolutely confirms the uh, historicity uh, of the flood account and, and of, of uh, Noah's day. But I think it's also fascinating to me that uh, he enlarged on a certain aspect of the days of Noah when he declared that they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. In other words, all of this wickedness is going on. I mean, astonishingly wicked, uh, the world had become such a demonic environment. And yet in the middle of all of it, uh, it was just business as usual. And, and it would appear that it, it, in Jesus' mind that this was the most uh, astounding thing of all about the times of Noah. Uh, not the wickedness, but that people could live in the midst of that kind of wickedness and come to believe that God would never rise up and ultimately judge it to bring it to a stop. 
And that is, that's a perfect description of our world uh, today. And it is in the midst of a world like this that God was so grieved at what man had become that he commanded Noah to build an ark and then he proceeded to judge the world. In terms of all of this, this wickedness, notice God's response briefly here as we close. And it is encapsulated in, in, in four phrases. In verse 5, the Lord saw. In verse 6, the Lord was sorry. In verse 6, the Lord was grieved in his heart. In verse 7, so the Lord said. You notice in verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And the word that is used there for saw in the Hebrew, it means to give consideration to. It means to ponder. It means to uh, examine uh, and to inspect and to judge. In other words, the judgment he ultimately poured out uh, on the earth at that time, it wasn't reckless. It wasn't arbitrary. God is never reckless. He is never arbitrary uh, in, in his, his judgment. His judgment is always measured and it is, it is always uh, deliberate and it is always based upon a careful examination and understanding of, of uh, the, every facet of the situation. In verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. I mean, imagine uh, he has, uh, here is God, he's gone from creating man for fellowship with him and, uh, and enjoying uh, the cool of the garden together with Adam and Eve to all of this. And he's not only been uh, rejected, but he's been rejected for the demonic realm. I mean, it, uh, it just absolutely uh, heartbreaking. Sin breaks the heart of God. And then we're told in verse 6 that the Lord uh, was grieved in his heart. I mean, in other words, he, he was grieved at what he saw, but he was grieved also at what he was going to uh, need to do in terms of judging uh, the, the world. God takes no judgment, uh, joy in the, the, what man had become at this particular point in time, no joy in the, the judgment he was going to uh, have to bring against them. He never is. God is never excited to judge the world. He's never excited to judge a single uh, individual. Ezekiel, uh, speaking uh, prophetically from the Lord, the Lord said, uh, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Peter writes in his epistle that God is not willing that any should perish but all would come to repentance. If God had his will concerning every single human being, they would become saved and they would enter into the glory of heaven and, and never ever perish or face his judgment. And then in verse seven, the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. So God is a loving God, but he is also a righteous God. He will always do uh, the right thing. And in fact, it'd be unloving if he, if he did not judge this situation that we've uh, examined here this morning. God had made a promise to provide the world and to provide mankind with a, a salvation and with a savior in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, uh, uh, through the seed of a woman. And all of that now is in jeopardy. 
And at that very, very time, uh, only eight people of the hundreds of millions or billions of people that ha- only eight people had any interest in God at all or his plan of salvation. And what if somebody rose up and a demonic inspiration and and uh, killed Noah and his family. Who is God going to bring the Messiah into human history through, as he had, had, had promised? So the reputation of God, the, 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 the truth of God hangs in the balance here. The wickedness of man was bad enough and worthy enough, really, of judgment by itself. But the added fact that it threatened God's plan of salvation for mankind, and uh, so that one day you and I and hundreds of millions of people like you and I uh, throughout history would one day be able to hear that gospel of a Savior who was born into human history in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, lived a sinless life, and was crucified for our sins and buried and rose again on the third day in order for him to come in and protect that gospel that he was going to provide to mankind so that we could be a saved people here uh, this morning and so that anybody in the world could be saved. It was necessary to judge that that ancient world and it made this kind of a judgment uh, necessary. But then you notice in verse 8 and 9, and uh, and it begins there, the first two words of verse 8, but Noah... And in the midst of this entire sea of wickedness, uh, in, in, in just indescribable uh, evil, God found a bright spot. And he saw someone who was living his life in a total contrast to the world all around him. And his sons, his wife and his daughters-in-law. Imagine being eight people in the whole world walking with God in a world this demonic. And God spotted them. And you notice those words, but Noah, and then follows the description of Noah. But not merely a description of Noah, but a description of the kind of child of God. It will require us being in order to stand in the wickedness of the world that will characterize the time immediately before Jesus coming to rapture the church. And so it's invaluable to us because if we are not in that time, we are 2,000 years closer to it than when Jesus spoke of it 2,000 years ago. But all of that will have to wait until next time. If you sit here this morning and you're saved, it is so vital, and I exhort myself, that we do not fall asleep in the midst of the wickedness of this age. And it's easy to when it permeates the entire world, when it somehow constitutes a, a good portion of the messages and what we interact with in terms of our eyes and our ears and in in the course of of a given week. And it's important that we don't find ourselves living as Christians 
in this age and the context of the wickedness of our day, eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage as if all of this can go on on its current course without God stepping in and judging it. And the importance of not living as if this is just going to endlessly go on just as it is. And I want to ask you in the privacy of your heart and to challenge my own heart, has the wickedness of our age uh, driven you closer to God? Has it made you more obedient to God than ever before? Or do you live as a Christian today completely unalarmed by all of it? Or even worse, participating in it? And you find yourself, and we can find ourselves, in the great catastrophe of those five virgins in the parable of the ten virgins who when the Lord came, they had no oil in their lamp and they were not where they were supposed to be. The importance of not falling asleep and being conformed by what it is that is around us, but to realize that all of these things speak of the nearness of the Lord's return and for these things to drive us into greater intimacy with God and not into a greater participation in the demonic-based evil of the world around us. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, let me read a verse to you that uh, the Apostle Paul declared in the city of Athens to a group of unsaved people as well. He said, Truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which Uh, He will judge the world in righteousness by the man, speaking of Jesus, whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And by virtue of one sermon alone now, you know better than to continue to participate, not merely in the evil of the world, but to live another day separated from a relationship with God because you have failed to commit, because you have uh, failed to repent of the worst sin that anyone will ever commit in human history, and that is a lifelong rejection of the salvation that is provided to you through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you have never trusted in him as your Savior, And today is the day to repent of your sin, put your trust in him, and get on the right side of history and on the right side of a judgment that is coming as surely as that judgment hit the world in the ancient times. There will be men and women who will be up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God this morning. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we know that you haven't, and Jesus, we know that you didn't speak about the times of Noah, 
so that we would spend all of our Christian lives tisk, tisking uh, the world and its decline, but so that that decline would be an alarm clock to us that this is a time like never before to draw close to you and to walk with you and to obey you. And I pray, Lord, and we pray that this time in your word would accomplish exactly that in each and every one of our lives by the power and the witness of your Holy Spirit within us. And we pray these things and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.